we have the privilege of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to talk about the resurrection today within the larger context of the gospel itself. So you might say, what is the gospel? And that's a good question. Um, were those last songs we just played, was that the gospel? Yeah, I mean, that's gospel music. Um, you know, do we think that maybe the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? Those are the Gospels. But when we, you know, we could say it like this. When we put a capital T and a capital G, when we say the Gospel, like somebody has been out sharing the Gospel, that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to look at the resurrection, but just in the larger context of the Gospel, because really the, the resurrection, the open, empty tomb, is really just kind of a receipt. It's kind of a proof. It's a payment. You know, the payment was accepted that was done on the cross. And so, I, you know, this year, I don't really want to separate the resurrection from the cross. And, and let's just keep it all together, and we're going to find out what is the gospel. I've entitled the message today, uh, you know, Have You Heard the News? Uh, and so that's, that's what it is. It's very simple. We're going to talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We're also, you know, as we do that, we're going to have a look at really what the basics are of Christianity. Like if you were to say, what are the basic things I must believe to be a Christian? That's what we're going to look at here today. And some of you might be saying, do we really need to hear the basics? And that's a fair question. I think we do. But personally, I need to be reminded of the same things over and over and over again. You can ask Erin. Um, she will tell you that. As I was studying, I Googled something I thought was interesting. I, uh, I'm going to set a timer here. I'm not texting. I Googled, what are Americans forgetting? Interesting subject. What are Americans forgetting? And boy, all kinds of stuff. World War II, uh, the Holocaust, all kinds of different stuff. American history, probably the most tragic thing. The most devastating consequences would be Christians are forgetting basic American doctrine. So I think it would be helpful just to look at the basics today. I was reading an article uh, entitled, Study Shows Most American Christians Don't Believe the Gospel. Here's a snippet from that article. It says, most Americans who describe themselves as Christians, 52%, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. In other words, they think going to heaven is because of your works. 52% of American Christians. Um, even those associated with churches were in their doctrinal statement, it's clear that heaven is not something you earn by your works. It's just purely based on the work of Jesus Christ. This was an article on the Gospel Coalition that I just read. Um, then it goes on and gives the breakdowns of the different denominations. 46% of Pentecostals believe this, 44% of Protestants, 41% of Evangelicals believe that heaven is some place that we get based on our works or that our, that our works can affect our entrance into heaven. So, you know, it's something that you achieve or you merit or you deserve or you work for. That's pretty staggering. 52% of people that identify as Christians in America, according to this study, don't know the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. That means the gospel is believing the gospel is how people are saved. And you're putting this together, 52% of American Christians don't believe the gospel, but yet the gospel is the power unto salvation. That's pretty frightening. So that's where I thought we would go this year is let's just look at the resurrection in the bigger context of the gospel. So we're just going to spend a few moments doing that today. If you haven't turned there already, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. 
After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word today, Lord, would you make the book live to us? Would you show us who we are in the scripture? Show us yourself. Show us our Savior, Lord. Speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beyond the words of a man. Heavenly Father, I pray your Holy Spirit speak to hearts in here today, Lord. Open the eyes of the blind. Lift the downtrodden. Humble the proud, Lord. Instruct and edify and build up your church here today. And Lord, may you call somebody to salvation today or maybe multiple people as they hear the gospel preached. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> when you hear that somebody preached the gospel... They're sharing the bare essentials of what it means to believe. They share the gospel so people will hear this message, they'll believe the message, and then they will become saved by believing this message. There are three things that every gospel message should contain, and we're going to get to them at the end of the exposition of the text, but I'm going to tell you what they are ahead of time. They are three things that should be in every gospel message. Maybe you would take, maybe you would add some, I don't know, but there are three things that, that I think should be in every gospel message that need to be there. Number one, your condition, your condition. Number two, God's solution. And number three, your obligation. In other words, what's the deal with you? And, you know, what is your condition? Then what is God's solution for your condition, for my condition? And then what's our obligation? What do we have to do to like get this to come into our lives? Uh, what do we need to do to be saved? So those three things, your condition, God's solution, your obligation. We're going to go through the text first, verse by verse, just going to explain a few things. Then we're going to come back to these three things. That's where we'll conclude uh, today. And I'm going to ask you today, somebody here, maybe, I don't know if you've given your life fully to Jesus Christ. And I just want to let you know that at the end of this message, I'm going to give you the opportunity to give your life to the Lord. And you can do it publicly. You can do it in the private of your heart. You can recommit your life to the Lord today. This is a time where I believe Jesus is touching your heart. I believe that's why he brought you here today. And Jesus is wanting you to come back to the good life, essentially. He's wanting you to come back to him if you've been away. And he's wanting to come, he's wanting you to come into that family for the first time. I believe that's why he brought you here today. I really do. There's not an accident that happens in God's kingdom. Everything is on purpose. God is working out his plan. God loves you like you're his only kid. And he brought you here today for a reason. So... Look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Now, Sunday night students, you're like, okay, you better set the context. Okay, so I will. The letter of the Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that they were Christians, but they weren't behaving like Christians. Uh, it's called First Corinthians, but you might think of it as First Californians, <laughs> right? Uh, more specific, like Hollywood, like Las Vegas. Like this was a carnal church. These people were selfish. They were more interested in spiritual gifts than they were serving. They were more interested at look at me instead of look at Jesus. And so Paul writes a couple of letters to them to rebuke them. First Corinthians is like, he actually wrote three letters to him. We only have two, but he, he rebuked rebukes them in this letter. In the chapters coming up to chapter 15, he's talking about their abuses of spiritual gifts. He says, spiritual gifts are great. Don't block speaking in tongues. I speak in tongues more than all of you. Desire that you prophesy so you build up the church. But I'm going to tell you what, the greatest thing is love because if you do all this other stuff, you don't do it in love. You're a clanging cymbal. You're a noisy gong. It's worthless. Then he comes to this chapter and he starts it by saying, moreover, right? So scholars are a little divided on why he starts this chapter with moreover, but most likely the, the likely, here's what I think, you know, anyway, you could do what you want with it is, you know, the discussion on spiritual gifts, the discussion on all these other things, there's something that's more important than all of that, moreover. And then he gets into chapter 15 and he talks about resurrection. He talks about the cross and he talks about the gospel, the basics of Christianity. And I think that's why he starts with moreover. So he's getting here and he's kind of got that attitude. And we could take this all like this. Here's an application is all of us could say everything you think about Christianity today, everything that's rolling around in your mind about it, moreover, the gospel is what you need to know, right? More than anything else, right? You need to know how to get saved. If you're going to Chicago, but you're actually on the road to Minneapolis, you need to know how to get to Chicago, right? If you're on the road to 
you know, hell, you need to get on the road to heaven, right? And so moreover, brethren, I declare to you, he goes on in verse 1. Notice what he says there. He says the gospel. You want to bring the text up on the, we'll just bring the whole text up on the screen, Isaiah, if you would. Because if you don't have a Bible, or if you've lost the art of how to read paper, and you can only read off TV, it's, it's possible. It's 2022. Okay, so you could just read along here too. He says, the gospel I preach to you. The word gospel, the Greek word translated gospel is the word euangelion. That's a weird word. Simply just means good news. That's all it means. It's like news. Like picture a newspaper article. You got the front page and there's a story on it. The gospel is news. If you got a news story today that said the war in Ukraine is over, you would hear a news story and the herald would bring it. He'd be out in the street corner going, extra, read all about it. The news is here that the war is over. The gospel is, hey, the war is over between God and sinners in Jesus Christ. It's news. That's what the gospel is. So you have to get that in your mind uh, first and foremost. What is the gospel? It's news. It's just a news story. Now, the contents of that news, that's what we're going to look more at. He says, going on in verse 1, which you also received and in which you stand, they heard this good news that came in through their ears, came to their mind. They chose an act of the will to believe it. And they, therefore, they were saved. And then they stand on this truth. And he says in verse 2, by which also you are saved. That's really important. Paul's saying, I preached this message to you. You heard it. You believed it. And by believing it, you are saved. Brings up a good question that comes up around Easter and Christmas a lot when people, uh, you know, start asking questions. And the, and the question would be, saved from what? Saved from what? A lot of people think of Christianity as like, well, you know, it, I've been saved from a futile existence, a life of purposelessness and meaningless. I was about to be done with it all, but God saved me. That's true. God does save you from a meaningless life. Uh, if you're open and honest and spiritually sort of sensitive, if you've been around a little bit, you find that the world's pretty vain, like that the things that make you happy, they don't really make you all that happy. You're not all that fulfilled, you know? Um, the things you do on Friday night, Monday morning come around and you're like, you know, that wasn't really all that worth it. You know, a lot of the things in this life take more than they give and you figure that out. And so does God save you from a bleak existence? Yeah, Absolutely. Does he save you from the power of sin in your life? Absolutely, too. That's a great thing. I used to be such a sinner, I couldn't, I mean, God has helped me tremendously, and you guys know if you've known me a while. Another thing that the Lord saves us from, and, and I wonder if this is the most important, is he saves you from himself. I don't know if anybody knows that here today, that actually, when you say, I've been saved, you're saying you've been saved from the wrath of God. Isn't that scary? We don't think about God like that in 2022. We think of God as just like a good luck charm, just like a little happy, you know, bobblehead on your dashboard, you know, Jesus bobblehead and all this stuff. But actually what the Bible teaches is you're, you're being saved, you're saved from the wrath of God because God is coming in judgment, right? That's the thing that we, we forget about this so often. We're so busy like trying to figure out how to navigate COVID and how to feed the kids and how to, you know, manage, you know, our TikTok account and all this stuff. We're trying to figure out all this important stuff in life. And the basic Christian doctrine is being forgotten, but one of the most basics is that God's coming in judgment. After the church age, the church will be raptured. The Bible teaches the church is going to be taken out of here. We're a pre-tribulation rapture church. We believe that's the doctrine. Um, you can, it, it's not an essential whether you believe pre-mid or after. If you want to go through the tribulation, go right ahead. I'm not going to. Um, so uh, just making light of it here. But Nonetheless, there's not a scholar that doesn't see in the, well, preterists, you know, most people see that God's coming in judgment, right? That, that there is a time where God's going to pour out his wrath upon the world and he's going to judge all those that have rejected Jesus Christ and it's going to be terrible. You can read about it in the book of Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, okay? And it's terrible. I don't even like that Bible reading through there because it's, it's gruesome, but it's something that Christians should be warning other people about. So saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God, singing Christ alone, we say, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live, right? We're saved from the wrath of God. He says, going on in verse two, he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, that word if keeps people up at night. Can you imagine why? The gospel isn't something you hear one time and you say, you give intellectual assent to it. You say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is my savior. The gospel is something you keep believing. If Jesus is your savior, you keep believing this throughout life. This is, 
you hold fast to this doctrine. You stand in this. You, do, you don't want to have any sort of assurance of salvation here today if you have said that you trust Jesus at one time. And, and I'm going to say something kind of hardcore. Uh, you don't have any assurance of salvation if you said yes to Jesus once, but you're not saying yes to Jesus daily. You don't have any assurance of salvation, right? The assurance is, is I, I'm standing fast in this. You know, when I was in confirmation class as a kid and I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I came up and I was the acolyte and I did my first communion or whatever it is, whatever you've done, maybe you have a little thing in your Bible that your pastor signed with a date on it, whatever it is. If you're not still believing that same thing, you know, I'm not going to tell you if you're saved or not, but I'm not going to comfort anybody in that because Paul starts that by saying, if, right? If you hold fast to this doctrine, Right? How do you know if you're holding fast to this doctrine? Well, that's another conversation. You can think about it. He says, if to the Corinthians, because they were behaving carnally, you know, they were all divided. Who's better, Paul or Peter? Oh, I don't know. Who's better? You know, (laughs) Democrats, Republicans, who's better? You know, all that stuff like that. They were divided over stuff behaving as carnal people. And so Paul says, are you holding fast to the doctrine you say you believe in? Verse 3 says, For I deliver this to you first of all, which I also receive. First of all means first in importance. Okay? What he's saying right here, Paul says, is of first importance. And then he goes on and he gives the core elements of the gospel. First of all, that Christ died. He's talking about the crucifixion at Calvary. One of the most well-attested facts in history. And he goes on and he says, He died for our sins. Notice that there, according to the scriptures. Do you see that? The cross was prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds, even, you know, a thousand years before Christ died on the cross. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, you just read one, one prophecy from the Old Testament. This is about 600 years before Christ died on the cross. I'm reading the New Living Translation because it's a little more vivid. And it says this in Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6. But he, talking about Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That was predicted about Christ going to the cross hundreds of years before it ever happened. By the way, the Bible has, you know, at least 150 some prophecies about Christ's first coming that he fulfilled to the T. So that's what Paul means when he says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He means the Bible has been prophesied and this the Old Testament has been predicted this long time. And he's telling the Corinthian church, Christ died just like God said he would on the cross. And here's why. For our sins. Goes on to say that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. What does according to the scriptures mean? Trick question. I just told you that. Ha ha. You guys are tracking along here. One of the most probably memorable places where the Bible talks about the three days is remember what Jesus says, you'll get a sign. Remember the wicked and perverse generation says, Lord, show us a sign. And he says, you'll get no sign except for Jonah, the prophet. Remember Jonah was in the, he was in the fish for how many days? Three. Old Testament has quite a few three-day references. Look them up. It's, it's a cool study. Verse 5, now Paul's going to give some testimonies. That was the basics of the gospel. Christ died according to the scriptures, for our sins, was crucified, buried, raised again the third day. Now, Paul's going to go on to give some eyewitness testimony about it. It's like, he's, he's like, here's the basics of the gospel, but let me tell you, um, you doubt this? Well, look what it says, verse 5, that he was seen. Okay, remember Paul wrote this letter at a different time in a different place in history, and when he wrote this, a lot of the people, you know, were still alive that were around the time when Christ was crucified and when he walked the earth. And that's what Paul gets at. He says, look at, look at first of all, he says, Cephas saw him and then the 12. Now, he's talking about the apostles, talking about Peter. This is powerful. Paul says, the apostles, the 12, they saw Christ in a post-resurrected state. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, let me give you some proof just to wrap your mind around it, that they at least believed what they saw. All of them, but John, went to a martyr's death. Every one of them, every one of these disciples of Christ was killed brutally for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't, you don't have to have a PhD in psychology to know that people don't die for something that they know is a lie, right? So 
at least what you can tell is they at least were convinced of what they saw because they were willing to go to death over it. Now, he goes on to say, verse 6, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some fell asleep. In other words, what he's saying is, over 500 people saw Jesus walking after the grave at one time, and he's saying, most of them are good. go to their house. Go, go ask them. They're still alive. That's what he's saying here, right? Think about these things. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. This is an interesting thing, too. You know, James, Jesus' brother, he wasn't a believer, you know? Growing up, he wasn't a believer in Jesus. You know, can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Like, he never does anything wrong. You're always getting in trouble all the time. Like, oh, Jesus, he's all perfect and everything. James didn't believe in him. But James became a very powerful leader in the church, and he gave his life to serving Jesus Christ. In fact, his letter says, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He willingly submitted himself to servanthood of Jesus Christ after he had seen Jesus in a post-resurrected state. So think about this so far. All the 12 go to martyr's death. 500 people see him at once. Go talk to him. They're still alive at this time. James, an unbeliever, is converted, gives his life to Jesus Christ. They must have seen something. Then Paul gets in and he says, um, and last of all, was, uh, he was seen by me also, verse 8, one born out of due time. Now, what he means is he came later than the other apostles. But G Paul did see Jesus in a post-resurrected state. And here's, this is remarkable also. It took this man, Paul, harsh persecutor of the church, and he was transformed completely. And he gave his life to Jesus. He became the hardest working apostle to ever walk the face of the earth. He must have seen something, right? So Paul kind of gives a little, you know, of the eyewitnesses there. He kind of lays some super powerful proof for the resurrection right in front of us there. Then verse 9, he says, For I'm least of the apostles. In that section there in verses 9 and 10, He's talking about, I persecuted the church. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. But he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God showed grace and mercy to him. He changed his life. He gave him a ministry. That's what Paul is talking about. In verse 11, he said, therefore, whether it was I or they, I think what he's getting at, do you remember the Corinthian debate? Who's better, Paul, Paulus, Cephas? I think he's saying, whether it was I or they who preached, doesn't matter. You heard the gospel and then look at the last words in verse 11. So it's four. And so you believed. Right. So a true gospel message contains three parts. Your condition, God's solution, your obligation. Our condition, we see in verse three, we're sinners. Christ died for sins. That's our condition. Number two. You see God's solution. What is God's solution? Christ died in the place of sinners, according to the scriptures. And then number three, our obligation. You see it in those last four words of verse 11. And so you believed. Condition, sinners, solution, Christ, cross, obligation, believe. Just going to take the remaining time that we have here, and we're going to focus on these three things a little bit. Number one, our condition, verse three says that Christ died for our sins. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth that people don't like to talk about so much anymore. This is one of the things that's just being forgotten. It's being kind of swept under the rug. You know, I did a funeral yesterday, guys. I was there, and I watched a guy take the ashes of his dad in an urn and bury them in the ground and put dirt on top of them. And the reality of death and life was there. And this man was not a believer. And when I met with the family beforehand, I said, um, if he's not a believer, I can't give any sort of assurance that he went to a better place. I'm not that kind of person that'll say something like that at a funeral. I, I, I'll either not do the funeral or I'm going to tell the truth about how you get to heaven. And so the guy was like, that's why we want you to do it, is we want you to share the gospel. And I'll tell you, as I was preaching to a room of people, eulogizing the man Every, I thought I did a pretty good job of eulogizing. Aaron thought I did too. And, uh, you know, this was a tremendous man. You know, I learned a lot of good things about him and just a tremendous guy. And I and, uh, loved his family and so on. And as I was eulogizing the man, I was looking around the room and I was looking at everybody's face in the room. And they're, oh, yeah, so, oh, did a good thing by bringing this guy here. He's such a good dude. And then I started to talk about how do you go to heaven? Because, I mean, it's appropriate at a funeral, isn't it? And so the minute I mentioned the word sin, 
about 50% of the place got this look on their face. Like, you know, some people did this the whole rest of the time I was there. Some people were more like, you know, but I'm telling you that one word changed the temperature, changed the climate of the whole place, bringing that up. And I think that's funny. It, it's not funny. I guess it's, it, it's interesting because even Christians don't want to talk about that word anymore. But you know, if God put that in the Bible and he talks so much about that in the Bible, how arrogant is it for man to try to say, let's not talk about something that God talks about so much. But I have to admit, I can feel that pressure as a pastor because there's a man pleaser inside of me that wants everybody to like me and wants to fill chairs and wants to, uh, there's a man pleaser inside of me. I don't want to talk about this stuff. And, and, you know, and, to, and another thing, another confession is in the beginning of my ministry, I used to like to talk about sin all the time. Sinners, you, you know, I was just too hopped up about it, you know. And if, if, God forbid if somebody gets enjoyment out of rebuking people in their sin, that's not really a good pastor probably. They are, let's just say they need to go through some things, you know. It's an uncomfortable truth. What is sin? Let's just talk about it a little bit because it's, it's essential to know about. Um, it simply just means to miss the mark. You ever shot a bow and arrow? You ever played darts? There's a mark in the center of the bullseye, and either you hit that thing or you don't, right? Now, all, you know, there's an exact middle, and anything else that's not in that exact middle is missing the mark. Actually, actually it's sinner is an archery term. The Greek term translated sinner, it's actually an archery term. And if you were out with your buddies and, and you're shooting bow and arrow and you missed the center of the mark, it, you, you're a sinner. That's what it is. And then you had to buy lunch and that's how it goes. And uh, so that's what it means, a sinner. So if, if somebody ever calls you a sinner, all they're saying is you missed the mark. Okay, but the, what's the mark? That's the real question. What is the mark we're trying to hit? Because a lot of us, by nature, the mark that we're trying to hit is our neighbor, really. Because we'll say things like, oh, I haven't killed anybody. You'll watch the TV and you'll see a story about Jeffrey Dahmer. And yeah, he killed people. He ate them. Well, I never did anything like that. Oh, my goodness. See, your mark is off because your mark is your neighbor or your mark is Ted Bundy. You're hitting that mark just fine. All of you probably hit the mark pretty well. You're probably better than all of your neighbors. I'm sure you're in church. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I bring my neighbors to church. What is the mark, though, that we're talking about? When God tells us that we're sinners, when we have our condition, we're looking at our condition, what is this mark that God is talking about? Uh, a simple way to understand it is very simple. It's the Ten Commandments. It's very simple. And that is God's mark. That is God saying, hey, humans that I created, here is the perfect moral standard that I expect in my universe. This is it. The Ten Commandments are the center of the bullseye. Okay? Now, if we read a few of them and we say, don't have any other gods before me. Don't ever have anything that comes before your relationship with God. Anybody ever done that? Today? Some of you are like, I spent a long time on my hair and that almost got in the way of me going to church. <laughs> me and Neil. <laughs> well, that's just one of them, guys. That's the first one, right? How about thou shalt not lie? Anybody ever told a lie? No, I never have. You're lying right now. <laughs> shouldn't look upon a person with lust. You shouldn't, you shouldn't look at somebody and, and, uh, of the opposite sex or, or, or anything. You shouldn't have lust in your heart. Um, shouldn't be so angry at your brother without a cause. Jesus says that's the same sin. You're the same sin as murder. Shouldn't take God's name in vain. That's not just using God's name as a curse word. That's calling on the name of Jesus and then not giving your life to Jesus and following him every day of your life. You took his name in vain. Oh, I take the name of Christ in confirmation. The rest of my life, I don't follow him. You took the name of the Lord in vain. That's what, that's what that is. Okay, this is the mark. And by God's mark, every single person in this room is just leveled by it, all of us, right? Even the babies, even the little babies, they're all born like that. Everybody's born like that. That's the mark. And so when the Bible tells us that we're sinners, it's saying you've missed the mark of God's perfect standard. 
Now, I want to make sure that nobody in here misunderstands the Ten Commandments because Paul says in the book of Galatians that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us unto the Lord, to Jesus. So what that means is that God's laws, the Ten Commandments, they are God's perfect standard. And of course, every human should be trying to live towards that. But the purpose of God setting them forth is almost like a test. A lot of us are familiar with tests now. We were taking COVID tests and we were doing all this stuff. There's a test that you take and it reveals whether you're positive or negative. Now, the Ten Commandments are a test, sort of, to reveal whether you're positive or negative. Are you a sinner or aren't you? Am I a sinner or am I not? And the law, God's law reveals them. So let's do the test. Well, we just did, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not lust, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, what are your test results? I, <laughs> okay. When you read the Ten Commandments, if you read them as 10 things that I can do to get into heaven, you're not reading them correctly. Maybe some of you, you've stayed out of church for years because of that, because you think that's what Christians do is they all live these 10 commandments. The rest of them are all goody two shoes. I'm not good. And so I can't go to church because I can't do these 10 things and I can't earn my way into heaven. And I'm not like those people. That's not right. The 10 commandments show that every single person in here has disgraced and broken God's laws. That's what the 10 commandments do. They're a schoolmaster. They bat us in line to get us to Jesus. I read the Ten Commandments and I go, oh boy, I need a savior, right? Amen. If you're reading the Ten Commandments and you're saying, oh my gosh, God is so good. No lying, cheating, no lust. I can't wait for heaven. It's going to be like that, by the way. And it, wow, this is how God wants his people to live. I look at God and I marvel and I say, God, you are so good when I read those Ten Commandments. But I also come away and go, I am so bad. If I went to the doctor, you know, I remember where Erin and I went to the doctor recently, and uh, she was diagnosed with some things that, um, you know, could have turned into something that could have killed her. And when we went to the doctor, he did some tests, and he came out and he gave us the results. I don't remember where we were at. I think we were maybe in Kansas City when we got the results. And, you know, it was just kind of like the faces at that funeral when they started to hear the word sin. You know, it was like, uh, but you know what, the, the test revealed that something had to be done. And so we went and did the things that needed to be done. There was a remedy and she took the remedy. And now, you know, she's going to live maybe longer, you know, you're all going to die, but you understand the point. You understand the point. The law is the test. It reveals that you have a terminal illness called sin, but there's a remedy. There's a remedy for this, and the remedy is Jesus Christ. That brings us to our second point. So that's our first, um, you know, our condition is we're sinners. We miss the mark of God's perf perfect standard, but don't lose hope because that drives us to Jesus Christ, and that's number two, God's solution, okay? The, it says right there in verse three, it says, Christ died for your sins and rose again. Now, this is talking about the cross, right? Christ's death on the cross is the solution for my sinful condition. That's the remedy. Christ's death on the cross. And you say, well, a cross, that brings up a whole bunch of weird images. I've, you know, it's, it's become uh, today a lot of different things. It's become a decor item, you know, get some nice, beautiful crosses in the homes, all ornate. Girls have them on their pants. Have you ever noticed those pants? You know, they'll have the cross on it with all the bedazzler, a little you know, it's all sparkly and beautiful cross. And yeah, that's cool. Like, you know, but I mean, in this time when this was written, do you know that polite people didn't even speak of the cross? It was a torture device. It was the most heinous death somebody could experience. Uncomfortable, I think, so we try to put the bedazzler on it. <laughs> Let's try to dress it up. The Bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You go into any crowd, any group of people, and you preach the cross, and to some of them, it's foolishness. They're perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. When Christ died on the cross, what exactly was happening? There's a few things I'd like us to reflect on today. Jesus was a ransom to buy us out of slavery to the devil. That's the first thing that was happening on the cross. Jesus was a ransom to buy us out of slavery to the devil. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The picture is, as we were bought by the devil, we were held as his slaves, but Christ paid the price. He's the ransom on the cross. The price was paid, and we're sprung from slavery unto the devil. Number two, Jesus was a victor. The work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. He was a victory over sin, death, the devil, and the bondage. He's a victor over these things. The next thing is Jesus was an example of true love. This is something that the progressive Christians kind of go more towards this aspect of the cross more than any other ones as they say, well, Jesus was just really a good example of what we should all do in love. And then, you know, some people will want to discount what they say there, but it's actually true. First Peter 2 21 says this, for this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So at the cross, we learn a lot about what true love is. You know, what a man laid his life down and he died for his enemies, for people that turned their back on him. The last thing that I want to reflect on about the cross today is Jesus was a substitute. Jesus was a substitute. It's sometimes called the doctrine of penal substitution. You've heard it before. Or vicarious atonement is another way that theologians describe it. That Christ was a substitute. And you read in the book of 1 Corinthians that he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness in Christ. That's, that's a wordy way of saying God the Father put his son on the cross. His son went to the cross and then he put the sin of the world on him so he might take our sin, but in exchange we would take his righteousness. He was a substitute. This theme of the substitute is shown all through the Bible in the Exodus. You remember the last plague that was going to happen. You guys remember this from Sunday school, right? Like, uh, how, how was the death angel going to skip over the houses, right? You remember you took the, the lamb, slaughtered the lamb, you took the blood, and you put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And when the death angel came that was coming to take the firstborn of everybody, that death angel hopped over or passed over every one of the houses that had the blood of the spotless lamb on the house. That's the same theme of substitution. Something is dying in the place of somebody else. That's, that's the picture. It's also in Leviticus, in the Day of Atonement, in a beautiful ritual. Once a year, the Jews on the day called Yom Kippur is what they call it. They bring in two goats, a lamb and a goat, and one's called the scapegoat. And on that day, the high priest places his hands on this goat, and he confesses the sins of all the nation of Israel, and they slaughter this animal, and he dies in the place of sinners. Then he goes to the other goat, the scapegoat. He confesses all his sins. On, he, he, he by, you know, by faith, transfers the sin to this scapegoat, is what it's called. It's a beautiful picture. And then they send this little goat to run off into the wilderness, and it runs all the way out of Jerusalem. And then they get word that the thing is over the horizon. Word gets all the way back to Jerusalem. They're celebrating Yom Kippur. And they all party. And they, yeah, yeah. Our sins have been laid on this goat. And he took them away as far as the eye could see. From east to west, as far as the eye could see, God has taken our transgressions from us. That's the picture. That's vicarious atonement. It's substitution, penal substitution. And when Christ died on the cross... That's that spotless lamb. That's that perfect lamb dying, innocent lamb dying in the place of guilty sinners. And that's what he did on the cross. He was a victor. He bought us out of ransom, out of the slavery to the devil. He was an example. And he was also the substitute. So the next time you look at somebody's cute little cross necklace, you say, oh, that's where I belonged. That's where I should go. But somebody got on there instead of me. That's the message. That's the message. For he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Believers throughout history were captivated by the cross. The song says, when I survey the wondrous cross, bids me to come and die. When I see what Jesus did on the cross, it bids me come and die, the hymn writer said. 
The other hymn says, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Billy Graham, before he died, people interviewed him and said, what would you do differently? He says, I wish I would have preached the cross more and the blood of Christ. You ever heard of Billy Graham's sermon? It's all about the cross and the blood of Christ. But I wish I would have done it more. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. As those things were being accomplished, he looked out at everybody that put him there, that spit on him, that smashed a crown of thorns into his head, that beat him, that mocked him, that tread the Lamb of God underfoot. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He uttered these words. He said, it's finished. All the sin of the world, all the wrath of God towards sinners was placed on Christ on the cross. Now, because that's done, because legally the debt of sin has been paid in that one man, now God can extend forgiveness to anybody. Anybody that will look to the cross, that will believe in what God did at that cross. Anybody in here can be forgiven by looking at that cross because he died in your place. It's beautiful. God's solution for my sinful condition, he poured the wrath upon Christ. You say, it's not fair. I know it's not fair. Love isn't fair. Love isn't about fair. It's about sacrifice. That's what he did. I look at the cross. I say, man, my sin is so terrible. It took nothing less than the death of innocent Jesus Christ to pay for my sin. And I also say, wow, he was so loving and so willing to do that for me. Those two things. My sin is that terrible. My Savior loves me that much. And I see both those things. If you think about that, next time you look at a cross, it's got the two sides on it. My sin is terrible. His love is great. And you hold those two things together. When you look at a cross, don't go home and take all your bedazzlers off your cross pants. Maybe. Maybe you should. So what's our obligation in all this? We'll conclude here. True gospel message contains our condition. God's solution brings us to our obligation. You must trust Christ. Look in verse 11. And so you believed. And so you believed. Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus Christ, or Paul said, you believe on Jesus Christ. You and your household, you'll be saved. They all got saved. You believe, you trust, not in works. A friend of mine in California, right when I moved to California, I was moving into this house. They have roommates out there and I was going to become the next roommate and the one roommate was moving out the day that I was moving in. And I said, who's that? And they said, well, oh, that's Sean. Where's Sean going? Well, they didn't tell me where Sean was going. Come to find out Sean was going to jail. I took his room. Years later, still in the same house, hanging around with the same crew, and I was like, I was curious, kind of rolling around in my mind, whatever. Not that curious, but it came to me, I found out what Sean did. Sean had been out having a good time in Hollywood. And uh, if you've ever been to Hollywood, there's, uh, smells like pee. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing is there are people all over the road, Friday, Saturday night, people all over everywhere, sidewalks, everything. Sean had been out having a good time and his friends had tried to wrestle the keys out of his hand, but he was persistent and left the club in Hollywood and Woke up the next morning in jail, had no idea how he got there. Police come in after he come to. And you're being charged with manslaughter. Um, what? All I remember is I drank a whole bunch last night. You're being charged with manslaughter. Sean had fallen asleep at the wheel proceeded to drive up onto the sidewalk in Hollywood and he killed a mother and her daughter. And he woke up. He had no idea what he had done. He was in jail for a while. Sean was never the same. The guilt. We may not relate exactly, but we do relate with the experience of guilt. Every one of us in here, unless you've got some serious problem, maybe you have a medical, I don't Every one of us relates with the experience of guilt. I 
I read of a very guilty woman in a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and she was seeking relief. And what she did was she went to a Christian, a well-meaning Christian friend, and she said, I'm carrying around a lot of guilt. And this well-meaning Christian friend said, oh, you got to get right with God. And she said, how do I do that? And he said, oh, you got to go home and pray. you got to get in the Word. you got to start going to church. No. Spurgeon said, no, a thousand times, no, 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 no. That's not how you get right with God. It's not bas- the gospel is not pray, read your Bible, go to church. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you can do nothing to save yourself. But there is one. One way, there is one who died to save you. And so I don't need to send you away and tell you to go pray and get into the Bible and go to church and clean up your act. I don't need to tell you that. That's a wrong message. 52% of Americans believe that message that call themselves Christians. It's wrong. The right message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message. There's one way to be right with God. Verse 11 says, and so you believed. That's it. If you're looking to anything else but Jesus Christ for assurance of salvation today, I invite you to abandon that and just look just directly to him. Look directly to him. I want to do this. How do I do this? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the message. Our condition, dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing you and I can do about that to save ourselves. God's solution, he sent his son to die on the cross in your place as a victor over Satan, as a ransom to buy you from slavery to the devil. To give you eternal life, God says, if anybody will believe on him, they'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. He says, anybody that comes to me, I will no wise turn away. If you'd like to give your life to the Lord today, if the Lord has been working on your heart You've been going through life and you've been getting convicted and God has been showing you that what I'm saying here today is true, okay? You've been under the weight of conviction of sin. You've been carrying guilt around. You have no idea what to do with your guilt. You're doing unhealthy things with your guilt. You're sick of a life that seems like it's controlled by sin and darkness. You're tired of these things. You want rest. Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. There's hope in this message He's been pulling on you. He's been pulling on you, and you know it. I want to make this available to you today. The doors are open. His arms are open wide. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you haven't done. Those things, all of us are in the same boat, and we need God's solution. He's been calling you, and he wants you. And so what I want to do is I I want to have us all bow our heads and pray. And then while I'm doing this, if this is today, if God's been working on you and you want to you give your life to him right now, I just want you to raise your hand up so I can acknowledge you and I can pray for you. I just want to pray for you while you're here today. If this is you, don't ignore God's promptings on your life. You don't know if tomorrow might be the day that you die. I buried, I watched a guy yesterday. We buried him yesterday and you don't know. I don't want you to deny this opportunity. Don't waste this opportunity. If you're in another category of person today where you may have said yes to Jesus at one point in your life, but just haven't been continuing in that, and it's time to give your life to Jesus fully, and you know that this is your time, you know this is the day, I pray um, for you now as well. We're going to just 
go through a prayer together and say this day is no accident. God brought you here for a reason. He brought you here to hear clearly your condition, God's solution for you, and your obligation to trust and to believe. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word. We do thank you, Father, for showing us, giving us the diagnosis. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son to die on the cross for us. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, there are some people today carrying guilt. Made a mess of their lives. Realize today that they have been missing the mark. They want to give their lives to you. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, Father, that you'd become their Lord and their Savior today. And so, if that's you today, if you want to give your life to Christ for the first time, I just want to lead you to, to do that. We'll just You can follow along with me. You can say this in the quiet place of your heart. You can say it out loud. However you say it, the Bible does say, confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus. <sighs> Father in heaven, I understand that your word reveals your perfect standard and I have broken your laws. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. I believe he died in my place. I pray now that you'd forgive me of my sin I want to repent. I want to turn from a life of unbelief to a life of belief. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. And I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.